You're listening to the Kaiju Apostle Podcast, a deep dive into Toho's rich history of monster films and discovering what lies beneath the surface. Whether you're a hardcore or casual fan, or somewhere in between, if you've ever thought there must be something more to these movies than people in rubber suits, then this show is for you. Thank you again for <laughs> tuning in to this episode of the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. My name is David. I'm Chris. And I'm Jack. What's up, Whoa. Jack? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I go by G-Man typically on Twitter. Is that, is that a more That'll info? be easier. Yeah. Okay. There yeah. we go. <laughs> uh, Glenn's doppelganger. Um, no, uh, thanks for joining us tonight, Jack. I, uh, I feel like it was just inevitable that you would be the guest for this film. Um, which, before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about yourself, I know you are a man of mystery, so feel free to divulge <laughs> as you would like. Uh, well, I mean, uh, first of all, thank you for kind of keeping my my day job kind of like under wraps. I know we've we've talked a lot and. Mm. Uh, and I appreciate that. It doesn't need to be that big of a secret, though. I'm I'm a I am a track coach. I've been a track and field coach for the last twelve years, coaching middle schoolers and high schoolers. And uh, over the last uh, two years, I've been coaching college, uh, as well as some gymnastics and CrossFit. So that's that's the day job. Uh, before all this, though, I was in film. I was involved in film. I was on a, several film sets, uh, a whole lot of music videos. And uh, one particular film I don't even put on my resume because it was so terrible. Uh, so there's there's some mystery that I'll just leave you leave with you. <laughs> um, I started. I was a film critic at a very young age, though. I w I've been writing for the last uh, I want to say twenty years, and I wrote for. A lot of local publications I wrote for a lot of websites that are now like gone, such as uh, cinescape.com. And uh, thank you for crossing for their demise. I appreciate that. Uh, um, it was for our audio listeners that I do all these physical actions. <laughs> but if you did it on the shirt, we would have been able to hear it, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We've been able to keep up. Uh, but I, I bowed out of both. I stopped reviewing films because... Uh, in the mid 2000s they they cut our word count and i didn't like that and i also didn't like being asked to write specifically good reviews for particular movies or bad reviews for particular movies because the publications were being paid off oh my and uh i also didn't like giving movies star ratings and i fought against that so i left that completely and i left the i, I left the film industry because uh, I, I soon realized that the, the only real way to move up was to step on someone else. And I didn't think I could sleep at night knowing I, that's something I would have to do to someone else. So I moved on to something I felt was more productive. Um, I was very, very fast track runner <laughs> when I was younger. And uh, I kind of wanted to pass that knowledge on to uh, the kids that I coach. And here I am. So, 
Yeah. And something you said there actually got me thinking. I mean, I'm not one for conspiracy theories, right? But I think there is something to be said about publications getting paid off for reviews one way or another. And I don't know if it's as widespread as some people would suggest, but it's definitely there, right? It's so. it's definitely not. It's not, you know, people people are thinking like the entire roster on Rotten Tomatoes are being paid off. It's not. It really isn't. They they mm-hmm. tend to go after smaller publications. Yep. Because well, you wouldn't notice it. Right. They're they're the ones in in need for more money, you know. Mm-hmm. So Oh yeah, like we would expect them to review better so they get more opportunities. So we wouldn't notice maybe. Something to that huh. that effect. You know, they're they're not going to pay off a reviewer at the New York Times. Fair. But they might pay off a small kind of like art newspaper in a smaller city. Huh. So I appreciate you sharing that. And yeah, and I my my thing is you know, we're all online. We share as much as we would like to share. I think that's one of the, it's a catch 22 of sorts, but yeah, yeah, I just, I try to be respectful of that. So it's not like I tell people, you know, that Chris is really four foot five and has three arms, but you know, (laughs) I mean, okay. I, it was funny because like, uh, it was only, it was actually not that long ago, maybe last year. I was telling David how hard it was for me to get pants because I wear um, twenty eight length, even though I'm an adult. And he's like, "Wait, are you like four foot?" And it's like, "Wait, why?" Oh yeah, because I wear children's <laughs> pants. You're right. I forgot about <laughs> like, that. Yeah, I truly was... appreciate the sentence. It's hard for me to get pants. <laughs> I, yeah, I actually I remember too, where sometimes. I was. I was walking out of the mall. Because I had just gone shopping at Johnson and Murphy to get some shoes. I yeah. was going to meet with a kid that that I worked with youth group and we we're gonna go see Captain Marvel. I remember that yep. conversation. And I was at Target looking for aforementioned pants that I can't find. <laughs> <laughs> so um again, thanks for joining us, Jack. We're excited yep. to get this gravy train rolling. But tonight because I somehow screwed up the dates, uh, we are discussing Invasion of Astro Monster instead of Frankenstein Conquers the World, because that technically came out first. So I done goofed. But anyway, <laughs> I am so- the innocent victim who had no idea that there was an order, let alone Frankenstein <laughs> was in this list. Yeah. Which I'm really excited for that one. I'll probably watch that tomorrow. It'll be my first time seeing it. But uh, so, yeah, we are discussing Invasion of Astro Monster. Um, It was released in 1965. Um, I've got a uh, plot summary here, and I'm going to try to channel my in a world guy voice as much as I can. (laughs) So actually, no, I can't get myself to do it. Okay, so the year is 1960X. Humanity has discovered a 13th moon behind Jupiter. In a joint Japanese-American venture, the World Space Agency has sent two of their finest astronauts to explore the mysterious Planet X. Upon their arrival, they not only discover intelligent life, but also the presence of the dreaded Monster Zero, aka King Ghidorah. The Exilian commander asks the two astronauts to return to Earth with a proposal. Give us Rodan and Godzilla to drive off Monster Zero, and we'll give you a cure for cancer. 
Of course, things are never as they appear. The Zillions have been planning for years, and when our heroes return to Earth after the two monsters drive off Monster Zero, leaving the kaiju behind, they discover there was no cure after all. Instead, the aliens knew they couldn't take over the Earth with Ghidorah, <laughs> I said it again, with Ghidorah due to his previous defeat. But now, with Godzilla and Rodan under their control, they find victory within their grasp. However, between our two astronauts and a wily inventor, humanity finds a way to fight back. Will they be able to prevent the Earth from being an alien colony? Or will King Ghidorah finally lay waste to Earth like he did Venus? So, trivia-wise, going to kind of jump into one thing. This is going to be the last... Uh, really the last team up we see with Honda and Subaraya and uh, everyone else. Um, so directing, as always, is Ashiro Honda. Uh, Shinichi Sekizawa did the screenplay again. Um, producing, though, this time, this was when it was a joint, uh, joint effort with a U.S. production company. I did not write the name. Um, but it's Tomiyuki Tanaka along with uh, Henry Saperstein and Ruben Berkovich. Uh, music is by Akira, however you want to pronounce it, Ifukube, Ifukube, Ifukube. Um, cinematography is Hajime Koizumi, and then special effects is Iji Tsuburaya. Now, cast, we have Akira Takarada plays uh, Kazuo Fuji as the astronaut, uh, number one, I guess, I don't know, just Fuji. And then Nick Adams uh, is Glenn, another astronaut. <laughs> we have uh, Kumi Mizuno comes back as Namikawa. She is the Zillion woman. Um, then we have uh, Kiko Sawai. She's actually uh, a new actress this time around. She plays uh, Fuji's sister. Um, then we have uh, Yun Tazaki, uh, sorry, Jun Tazaki as Dr. Sakurai. He plays uh, the professor at the World Space Agency. And then we have Yoshio Tsuchiya is the controller, or if you want to say commandant of Planet X. Uh, Kiro Kubo plays... Uh, wow, I just lost uh, track here. Uh, yeah, Tetsu Tori. Uh, he's the inventor. And then we have Yoshibumi Tajima. Um, he is a unnamed military official. He wasn't given a name. Um, Haru Nakajima is Godzilla. Masaki Shinohara is Rodan. And then Shoichi Hiros is King Ghidorah. All right, trivia. I love knowing that this film actually pissed off Ishiro Honda to a certain degree. So, <laughs> That's fun trivia. Yeah. So, you know, everything in the biography is leaned towards him being really patient and diplomatic, right? Um, but uh, Ishiro Honda's uh, son, Ryuji uh, Honda, said when they made Godzilla do the uh, Shia thing, you know, when he jumps up in the air and does his little dance, um, I knew how pissed my father was. He didn't say a word, but he was beyond angry. And it's just, it's really reaffirming the fact that these films are going away from the, I don't know, like Honda's always had a very artistic vision. And obviously he tried to rein that in as much as he could with this film. But I think it's very obvious why Honda isn't involved in the films as prominently from this point out. Mm -hmm. um, that also includes the fact that this is the first Godzilla film that we actually start seeing stock footage. So it allowed the budget to be lower, but fans noticed, right? So you have that scene where Rodan comes into the town and starts crashing in. Well, 
it's stock footage from the first Rodan film, right? You go from design to design. It's very obvious if you're paying attention. So, you know, he, he's on notice saying there's criticism that special effects movies were no good anymore. A good movie cannot be made this way. So this period is a sad part of our history. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, that's becoming more prominent now, as we'll see in All Monsters Attack. I think it can be used creatively, um, but this was just cutting corners, right? Um, as for the zillions, uh, we have Suchia. Uh, so he suggested that the hand movements, um, should be added in. And then him along with Honda, they crafted that new alien language. So apparently it was a combination of French, German, and then there was a satirical, I guess, book or essay from the twenties, um, called Kappa and the language from that is combined with all that. And then really last thing I had was, like I said before, you know, this was one of the last Honda Subaru genre films, but it was officially the last Honda and Subaru genre film to make it into the top 10 domestic releases. So, I mean, progressively from here on out, box office was a little struggling. Um, but yeah, Jack, I know you had a, you said a dossier uh, <laughs> prepared for some stuff. So do you have anything to share here? Uh, as far as trivia, you 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 really did nail a lot of what I was kind of like going to say. I have, I have little bits, like little interesting kind of tidbits here and there. Like uh, uh, on the way back to Earth, the P1 passes a, it looks like a space station mm -hmm. in space. That's actually uh, a leftover uh, model from Gorath, uh, which I don't think you guys have have watched. Do you guys plan on watching that one? If we get enough patrons, that is a film we are planning <laughs> okay. on discussing. Yeah. Smooth. Um, you mentioned it was in the top 10. Uh, this is the last like film in the top 10 domestic releases of Honda and Subarais. That's true. Uh, there, there seems to be some dispute where it landed. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, according to Stuart Gabreth, it was number nine in 1965. Uh, according to Rifle and uh, Godachewski, they said it was number 10, I believe. Hmm. Um. So there's some uh, dispute there. Uh, Eiji Tsuburaya, he won his sixth and final Japanese motion picture technical award for this movie. Uh, it's kind of the special effects award, like sort of like the Academy Awards, uh, until they were replaced by the actual Japanese Academy Awards in 1978. Uh, this, uh, and as you mentioned, this is the last Godzilla film Tsuburaya actually supervised and did the special effects for. Uh, his DP, uh, Sadamasa Arakawa, would be largely responsible for the next three movies, but Tsuburaya would get credit just out of respect. Um, the motion picture uh, that co-produced this you were looking for was uh, United Productions of America. That That's the one. Uh, they they had a deal with Toho. They were going to produce five movies, and this was one of, one of those five that they co-produced with Toho. Uh, and of course the, you know, the Shay, the dance, the Godzilla dance, we might as well get this out of the way is from the popular man, uh, manga, uh, Osu Matsukun and no one, but Subaraya wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> Arakawa didn't want it. Nakajima in the Godzilla suit didn't want to do it. Uh, but Subaraya thought children would love it. And, and that's that, you know, the, the Honda biography says fans were divided. Rifle's first book claims as much as Honda hated it, he still like snickered at it in a uh, early cut screening. Uh, 
And Rigoni's book claims it was a massive hit with audiences. So whatever the reality is, you know, there's no denying the movie is pretty bonkers and very pulpy anyway. So it kind of fits. Um, there was a six and a half foot Godzilla foot uh, used to smash much larger detailed miniatures for close-ups in the film. Uh, something that works a lot better than the life-size Godzilla foot used in Return of Godzilla. And oh, yeah. uh, the film, this film features the least amount of screen time for Godzilla in the entire series. He's on he's on screen for five minutes and 43 seconds of the film. That's 6.1% of the entire movie. And it's one of the best. And it's one of the best, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was wondering about the foot part, though, because I remember... So I watched it twice as I try to do, right? And yeah, both foot? times, yeah, I, I watched the foot. I'm not, <laughs> dude, I'm not Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> but no, like, that was just something that stood out to me, though, where I'm like, the miniature work in this movie was great, even on Planet X, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, King Ghidorah's gravity beams, the explosions and everything looked great. Um, but yeah, the those scenes where his foot comes down and crashes in through the houses. I was like, this looks really good. And I was wondering how they did it. So that makes sense. This is a six foot foot. Okay. It was a stomp of approval. See, you worked it in. There you go. <laughs> we'll, we'll share that picture on the Twitter page. I found some like little bit of Godzilla history that I like, since I don't know Godzilla history, I like it, but I don't know. <clears throat> Um, I have, I think two, I can remember one question. The other one might come back to me, but, um, you guys had mentioned the Mysterians earlier. Mm -hmm. Does it, and I didn't ask this ahead of time. So you guys don't have any time to prepare, but just thinking like the sixties with the Mysterians before, and then Star Trek is coming up. Was there like a big sci-fi alien push in the sixties in Japan? Or was this kind of like a one-off thing or was it kind of the zeitgeist of the sixties? I think just in general, science fiction was what a rise in science fiction in general was what's being pushed. Okay. Not not simply like aliens and whatnot, because you got to think even even by the time Mothra versus Godzilla came along, there wasn't really a Godzilla series yet. It was just Toho science fiction fantasy series. Mm -hmm. So I they I would assume that's all kind of lumped together. In, okay. in one big, the Godzilla, the space operas, the other kaiju, the, the H-Man, all that stuff. Sure. Yeah, because he had, a, what, Battle in Outer Space, mm -hmm. and then there was another one I felt like. Gorath. Maybe I'm... Yeah, Gorath, I guess. Yep, 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 yep. So yeah, it was just kind of already part of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, so... Before we get into the thematic elements, I mean, Chris, obviously initial thoughts before going into it and then just kind of your, your, yeah, your initial impressions. Like, where did you, where did you think we were going with this film? Well, just broadly, I think I, I've definitely heard the name of this movie before, but I had never, can, I didn't ever know it was part of the Godzilla franchise. So when I saw that it was the next one, I thought that's kind of an interesting little bit, um, it's interesting to see how many movies that I've heard the name of that turn out to be Godzilla movies, I guess. Because um, <laughs> they don't have Godzilla in the title. Or in the movie, sometimes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought... 
So I, I mean, just for full disclosure, David warned me ahead of time that this would have less Godzilla than any other one. But man, did it make it worthwhile whenever he would show up because he didn't like judging. I can't remember maybe two or three movies. We've seen like this shift where Godzilla himself is becoming a lighter, more um, child friendly hero character. And then we're kind of seeing all of the monsters get a little more friendly and then they kind of lose that like terrifying kaiju element. So now it kind of made it like when he showed up, there's a sense of mystery kind of restored. And I don't want to talk about this like a, you know, Boba Fett in the 90s was so B.A., but now he's a child, so we hate him. But like there is a little more like sense of urgency, a sense of weight when he would appear. And I really appreciated getting that back. And when we talk about like the movies being about the human characters, there was just so much, um, so much that was just put front and center here. So I really appreciated seeing the characters like reevaluate the themes that we've been coming to explore, but not in like uh, just rehashing them, but like challenging them now. With we'll talk about this in a sec, but like introducing a little bit of the skepticism and. How far can the military go? How far does scientific progress go? Because scientific progress got us in some of this mess. So it's really interesting. We're still seeing um, the franchise kind of evaluate its own themes. And I love that. Movies like this, and I'm going to stoke the flames a little bit. Last Jedi, when they go back to the themes, the core, and ask, why is this the core? What does it mean for this to be the core? That was really interesting. Yeah, and, and I'll agree with you there. I think even later in life, Honda mentioned that he wished Godzilla would probably stand for something else apart from, you know, nuclear, nuclear warfare, right? But ultimately, I think when you set that foundation of that's where the film starts, even if you start looking at new themes, there still has to be reverence for that, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that and we'll get into that. So it's not like we're watching a film and all of a sudden now, Japan's just like, yeah, we'll just go ahead and nuke, you know, the SOBs and there's no ethical <laughs> dilemma at all. Right. right? Um, so it's not like Godzilla has to necessarily stand for the same thing, but that foundation is never removed. So you mm-hmm. can explore new things, but it's still within the same same framework there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was I shared that with you just because. I didn't want you to go into it and be like, wait, what's happening? Like entirely. <laughs> Am I watching the wrong movie? <laughs> yeah. 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 So well, this was like, sorry, but this was one of the first ones that doesn't open with like a press conference or exposition dump. So I was a little bit like, whoa, did we get new directors? I don't even know directors of movies that I like watch all the time. So like, I love Scott Pilgrim. I don't know who directed it, but I was like, did we get someone else here? Did we get a new... Oh, no, I'm getting a look. How do you not know who directed Scott Pilgrim? <laughs> That's probably on the box, I'm sure. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so, before I just, like, slap you through the, the screen here. So, Jack, really quick, before we get into this, why is this your favorite film? You know, we, we've kind of covered a lot of that just by what you guys are talking about. There, there's we'll, we'll get into the themes, which is a big part of why it's my favorite film. But, you know, I, I pull this one out of the bookshelf, the DVD shelf or whatever. And every time I do, I, I pull it out because of the cast. 
this is my favorite cast in any Godzilla movie. It, it's uh, I I love the actors in this movie. I love the characters they're playing, and I essentially just watch it for them. The monsters really are a cherry on top. It's an alien invasion movie, but with monsters, and I I love that. I love the kind of restraint from the monster footage, but I also like the pulpy sci-fi feel it has, kind of like Forbidden Planet. Hmm. Uh, I compare it to Forbidden Planet a whole lot. And, and it just feels like a comic book. And and I really enjoy the just the way it looks, the designs about it, the way it feels, and how it wasn't afraid to mix two of Toho's most like popular genres into one, you know, you know, amalgam of 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 fun and excitement. So so let me ask you this. I mean, you obviously you feel strongly about it. Why do you think people are so resistant to it? And I don't think it's necessarily even that there's little screen time for Godzilla. Do you think it's just because thematically and aesthetically and everything about it is just so different? Well, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't run into many people that are very resistant to it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that's a very rare thing. I, you know, we, we talk a lot on Twitter, I, I, uh, Twitter and I, I run into some people on message boards and stuff like that. The only time I've ever run into resistance against it was one person just didn't like the concept of Godzilla in space, <laughs> which, okay. I mean, you know, some people prefer their Godzilla movies very, very serious. Some prefer them somewhat grounded. Some prefer them just like anti-hero Godzilla mm-hmm. and some prefer them just bonkers. Yeah. And I think this is an instance where uh, the movie really embraces the camp, isn't afraid of it mm. and, and just kind of, you know, tells its story well with the camp as a stylistic decision, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it's, yes, Honda wanted to, you know, play things straight, but it's a, you know, it's a very early science fiction movie for Japan and it had to have an element of fun to it. So, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I'm just, I'm like, wait, I don't go on Reddit anymore. Of course, like people don't hate it. That site was just, <laughs> God, for a while I felt like it was okay. And then I just, it kept getting worse and the moderators just stopped caring um okay well do you mind if i touch back on a comment real quick yeah uh by the way it's edgar wright i was trying to give you a few minutes to like oh wait he was like i almost did a man wasn't he he was and shot of the dead and hot fuzz and the world's end wait did he do baby driver yes yes oh cool um (laughs) wait so I guess I'm a little surprised. So, you know, reminder that no one tells me what people think about the movies until I've watched them. It's to not change my thoughts on the movie. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm surprised that this one is like kind of the one that people don't like. Because if it's a tonal shift, we've already seen the tone shift. So, uh, well, yeah, again, I think I was overstating my point. I just okay. I have seen a lot of people on Reddit who don't seem to like it but then again i remind myself it is reddit yeah yeah so. i mean i i see it on a lot of like people's like top lists usually uh i know kind of the the guard of godzilla fans that wrote all these books it's in their top movies usually uh so i don't think i and often the one thing i hear repeatedly is that 
many think this is the superior sequel to Ghidorah, the three-headed monster. So compared know, to I, to Ghidorah. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. To so like that, a lot of people find this to be the more polished, stronger sequel to that film. Gotcha. See, and I would actually agree to that. So here's the thing, though. I was looking at this earlier, and I've got to remind myself how Eric from Monsters vs. Men rated this. So out of 15, it was number 8, which isn't bad, but he did put it underneath Ebera. And I like Ebera. I just, I don't know how I feel about that. (laughs) I just, I don't. Hey, I just listened to your Space Godzilla podcast with them, and I don't know how... <laughs> you rated it I above know. a goose egg, so <laughs> yeah. Well, Whoa, the thing spoilers. Is, yeah, the thing is with those films. I mean, like, I think a three is probably about as high as I'm gonna get for. I mean, for the most part, three and a half maybe. <laughs> is Space Godzilla the one with the diamonds? He's the uncut gem. You're not gonna tell me. Wait, I have one more comment. So remember when Jack, you were saying like. Uh, or G-Man, you're saying like some people like their Godzilla can't be or some like it serious. I like mine to be written and directed in 1998. Continue. Do we kick him uh. off now? Is this where we... <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> every every time we do this, there's at least six, like I'd say probably six instances for me. And then I can't think of how many he's thinking about me. So <laughs> how many times I'm thinking about you? <laughs> yeah. Wanting to kick me off. Oh, Um well, I mean, I know you think about me all the time. So. <laughs> hey, you know, it's been half an hour. Should we talk about the movie? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we had a couple of themes we wanted to get into. Um, really. And what's so it's funny, Chris, is I was losing it when you had said that the film didn't start with a lot of exposition and a news conference. And I'm like, did I share my notes with you? Because that's exactly how I wanted to start this off. Is, how funny. You know, this this really with being a joint operation with the United States, this really is an Americanized Godzilla film. And I wouldn't even say in a bad way. Right. We're not necessarily getting, you know, the the shallow elements of what could be an American sci fi film. Mm-hmm. Rather, with Saperstein, he really just felt like at this point, Sekizawa had kind of gotten in a rut with the way he was writing. We're kind of getting I mean, let's be honest, it's, it's, we get, you know, we've had the, the tribal islands, we've had the red berry juice, right? There's always like something going on that we've already seen in a film before, which isn't necessarily bad, but at a certain point you're like, okay, well, how is this going to adapt and shift? So he felt like, especially for American viewers, you're going to keep them engaged if you just get straight into it. Right. So let's Mm. not worry about the news conference in the beginning. Let's put it in the middle. Let's not worry about all the exposition. Let's just get him to space. But I feel like, I mean, with, you know, with Ghidorah, like it's a fun film, but this is exactly like it it gives that just kick in the butt that the films really needed. And that's why I would choose this one over Ghidorah like any day of the week. And it's not that it's a bad film, but like this is more engaging. This is more lively. Like there's, in a way, there's almost more heart to this film, I feel like, than Ghidorah had. Um, you know, and for me, I feel like one of the biggest parts is we we don't see 
the stereotypical American heroes in this film, right? Like mm. Glenn is not this like on paper, he looks like he would be a John Wayne ripoff, just badass cowboy guy. Right. And like, he's not, he's, he's very gentle. He's thoughtful. He doesn't try to push anyone out of the spotlight. Like he's the guy that in the midst of, you know, relationship strife, he's trying to be like, well, trust is enough. Right. And you're looking at him and you're like, that's not what a Hollywood star should say. Like, that's not what <laughs> American films do really, you know? And right. it was, it yeah. was awesome to see that. And then obviously you have Tetsuo, like, you know, he's the inventor who's struggling with money and he ends up saving the world. Mm-hmm. Like it's this inventor that he's being ridiculed and made fun of, but it's his ingenuity that saves the day. But again, there's this sense of like, which at least, you know, with those two characters, we really see a lot of compassion and selflessness that isn't typical for a film like this. Like Fuji mm-hmm. is kind of that, right? He's he's brash, he's he's very protective of his sister. You know, he plays the the kind of the I don't know, he's just he's a little rough around the edges, and but by yes. the end of it he warms up, you know. That might be an interesting conversation to have, maybe not a long one. But comparing Tatsuo with, um, oh, edit me and saying his name, the inventor from Gojira with the Oxygen Destroyer. Like, yeah, why did they create? What did they create? How their device ended up actually saving the day? What the cost was? Those are some really interesting parallels that could be drawn there. Yeah, but he didn't have to die. Right. Well, that's the thing, because he didn't make a weapon necessarily it was a he marketed it's like a women's defense protection but it ended up being a weapon and that's what's interesting right right it became something that was weaponized yeah and that's which what is itself a commentary i was scared of yeah so but yeah i mean overall i mean do you guys would you say you agree with that where we we do kind of see more of a westernized godzilla film here yes yes and no just in the sense that you know you mentioned how uh I feel like regardless of the stipulations, Honda is always trying to rein it into his own personal vision. And uh, like on the one hand, yeah, we get right into the action with, uh, with this movie. We're already in space. Forget the conference about talking about going into space. Let's just, let's just go into space. Uh, then you have Glenn and we almost expect him to be, you know, the rebel uh and and he's he's strong enough to know when to be gentle essentially mm. which almost isn't a very you know i wouldn't think a very american thing from uh the japanese point of view and so i almost feel like he subverted a little bit of that with uh the glenn character yeah, I think there's this view, even among Americans, that Americans are the cowboy yeehaw types. Mm-hmm. And so this, I love that, I love that phrase, strong enough to know when to be gentle. So that's, you know, I, one thing I love about Honda is that he doesn't really have traditional heroes in his movies. Uh, his main characters aren't uh his main characters aren't military or you know interpol or g-force mm-hmm. uh 
I, I read this article about Game of Thrones one time trying to argue for biblical comparisons in the series. And one of the arguments was that all the heroes were not kings or honored knights. The heroes were dwarves and bastards and cripples and the dishonored and the unlikely heroes. And Honda's main characters or heroes are scientists, reporters, and in this case, explorers, traders, mm. nerds. Um, and I think that's very, a very anti-American action movie to have characters like that. Yep. And I even think with the antagonist in this film too. So when I did a poll the other day, and I, this is good, you know, segue hey. into that. <laughs> yeah. Is that your, is that your roommate, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when I did a poll earlier this week, you know, I was like, if you're stranded on a desert island, only had one person to keep you company, which hero from Invasion of Astro Monster would you want to accompany you? And I think, you know, we all agree. Glenn is strong enough to know when to be gentle, right? I would want that on a desert island. Now, that's when you have everyone's like, well, what about Namikawa? And I'm like, well, she's not a hero. She's not necessarily a villain. But I love that about this film where obviously you have, you know, the commander of Planet X, like he's obviously a villain, right? And those mm -hmm. and there, they're typical villains in a film. But with her, I mean, I would still say she's an antagonist. You know, she's very like. She. You have these people are just like, well, she saved the day at the end. Well, ultimately, she didn't. Right. Because there is this element of, yes, she did kind of clue Glenn in to what to do, but ultimately she was resigned to the fact that either Glenn was going to come back with her and he was going to convert to Zillionism, mm -hmm. you know, and she wasn't convinced that the Zillions were even wrong, right? Because she was going back or the fact that she was going to die and mm -hmm. she was concerned about how to save him. It wasn't necessarily how to save the earthlings or none of that. So, like, she's a very sympathetic antagonist, right? She was programmed a certain way, but she ended up developing feelings. But there's that complexity there that even now I feel like we struggle with in cinema, right? That's why I mm -hmm. think so many people loved Parasite because there weren't black and white good and bad people. There were, there were nuances to both sides. So by the end of it, they're like, well, y'all are all screwed up, but, like, you still had sympathies for their motives and their actions. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Well, and that's maybe where Parasite does really well in framing it as capitalism. No matter who you play off or no matter where you are playing into the capitalist structure turns you into a parasite. And it could be why rich people still really like the movie, despite the fact that it's clearly not in favor of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, everyone's, being oppressed by someone else. So I think we can all kind of resonate with that. And, yeah. you know, even, even in that capacity, I've seen a lot of people say that, but then I'm also like, not every single actor or actress uses their money. They don't squander it. Right. I mean, I would say just because someone's in that position, I mean, I have my issues with capitalism, but I'm not going to tell someone to just give up everything they have. But, you know, so it's just, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of nuance there. So there's been a bunch of, virtue signaling today that I've just kind of had to ignore. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, getting into the changes here in the film, and this is where I'd love to hear your thoughts, Jack. 
is not that I don't care about you, Chris. I need to clarify. Um, <laughs> we really see a shift here, and this is where I made the comparison with the Mysterians, is there's a skepticism here towards science and scientific progress that we haven't seen in a Godzilla film, right? Everything mm. so far has been very staunchly put your faith in the scientists and the professors and the inventors. But now there's almost this element of maybe we're too trusting about our choices here and what we strive to do in the name of progress. So Mm -hmm. where do you feel like Honda was going with this? You know, it, it's a theme that's there. It's a theme I haven't like researched a whole lot because there, there are other portions of the movie that just kind of pull me other themes about the movie that pull me in. But I, I do see the comparison with the Mysterians that you're making there. He was very clearly, you know, there was a very, a very clear, uh, you know, warning sign that the Mysterians had hung around the movie because the, the technology that the Mysterians had, you know, ended their world and uh, they're bringing it to Earth still with a chip on their shoulder, essentially. Here we're watching these the Zelians, you know, they're they're so trusting in their technology that they won't they won't deviate from their computers whatsoever. Uh, you know, they they have a very, very staunch system that they go along with to the point where you know all their women look the same. Uh, and it, it's it was I want to say in part their undoing because they would only trust the computer. They never kind of thought outside the box. But I also can't think of a a clear point in the movie where trusting the computer betrayed them totally. Except unless you want to consider the very end where he blows up the ship because the computer likely told him to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I really do want to hear, you know, some things that you feel like this film... I guess that you're gravitating towards, you know, space pun intended. Um, But, you know, you said something there where you're just like, you're so focused in on something that you're unwilling to deviate, right? Mm -hmm. And that really makes me think of a lot of the conversations I have with Christians where we have this idea that, you know, the Bible is the word of God. This is what I've been taught. And we're unwilling to change our views about this because we think that, if we don't hold to this idea of what the Bible says, then we're going to go to hell. Like, it's not like even uh, I may not be as successful in life. It's this like straight up, like we will not succeed if we don't do this. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so crazy about the Zillions here is if they would have actually looked at what was happening, you know, they may have been able to reassess. And it's not that I'm saying the Bible's flawed, in the way that the computer calculations were. But I think there's times where as Christians, like we get so conditioned to a certain way of thinking that we don't realize how much we need that perspective from the outside. Right. And mm-hmm. so it just kind of got me thinking of like, in my own life, I've held on to these ideas that if I would have kept going, I would have like, I don't even want to think of the road I would have gone down. Right. So mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely an element of as humans, we have, a tendency to be very hard-headed and dogmatic. And I guess the technically zillions can be that way too. It's not just humans, but 
it's that's just part of who we are as humans, right? We we need to be humbled. We need to work together. And that's what we see with our protagonists is it actually took, you know, when when they come back and they're freed from, you know, Zillion jail, you know, Fuji's like, what are you doing here to Tetsuo? Right. And it's like, hey, he's the one who's here to help. Like he had to take that step back and be like, okay, I actually need to listen to someone else. Maybe he's got an idea. Well, there's a, if you want to pull out a SAT word, the epistemological values of like, what's the epistemology hey, of knowledge? Podcast. You can't say piss <laughs> on here. Oh, sorry. The, uh, P-tomological. But like the way we we approach faith compared to the way we approach science where we forget science is not value-free. It is biased. Like if not in its results, why this experiment instead of this experiment? Why this scientist rather than this scientist? Um, Why do the men look different? Why are all the women the same? It might be a good question there. So... There is a there. It, that's such an interesting point where they approach the computers as the end all be all. It knows, but then it portrays like human relationships as messier. We have to like trust and get to know each other. There's not such a stringent epistemology, but an epistemology of trust that's built in relationship. That I think that's an interesting. All that to say, you made a good point. Yeah, no, I I very much agree with that. Uh, John Wesley Ship, who plays the father of Barry Allen in the, uh, the flash TV series. And he played Barry Allen in the 1990s, uh, flash TV series. His father is a pastor. And he said something to me once that I, I was just blew my mind. He said, if you're taking the Bible, literally, you're not taking it seriously. Hmm. And I think what he was driving at is that when you, when you look at something, uh, and you, you just, you know, can't find a way outside of the information or the text that you're seeing, then you're not, you're not really thinking about it. And in terms of how the zillions sort of operate with their computer, they, they, there was no outside possibility, no interpretation other than what was there. They mm-hmm. had become the machines that the computer was essentially. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's it's a a lack of discernment and that's really what even I feel like Honda's trying to say in this film, right? Is he's not subscribing to this idea of a pure utopia. And I think some people look at Honda's films and think that sometimes they're like, well, true pacifism will never happen. True unity will never happen. And really I don't see that. I just see him be like, "Hey, like we should at least strive for this because striving mm. for this is better than not. You know, even a shred of peace is better than none. So whereas the humans should have used more discernment with trusting the aliens, you know, the, the aliens really should have used more discernment and not trusting the computer as much. You know, it's... Uh, well, not just bit. the computer. They straight up tell them, like... Oh, we're controlling them through magnets, like magnetic waves. So just in general, they treat everybody like an information. Instead of thinking relationally or interpersonally, they're like, oh, yeah, it's magnets. And then the human's like, oh, thanks. Awesome. We can use that. <laughs> well, 
you say that and I didn't catch that, but it is interesting. Like when uh, Tetsuo's in jail, like usually that would be the part where the villain has the monologue about uh-huh. plans and you don't get that. I was like, uh-huh. Interesting. That's but true. I guess it's because they kind of shared some stuff here. But I mean, I think at that point, it's just a matter of they were underestimating the humans, right? They're like, well, I mean, what are they going to do with this? Um, Your point about utopia versus like a flawed system is interesting because we're going to start seeing that in just a few years. And I know it's American, but in a few years, we're getting into Star Trek, which is very utopian sci-fi. There's mm-hmm. no money. There's no religion. Most of the time, there's no sex even. Um, so sci-fi. Hmm? So that sounds horrible. <laughs> As oh, a married yeah, man, telling me about a life without sex, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, you know, I'm not editing that out, by the way. We're all adults here. We can talk about it. Um, I love it. But I don't know. I'm just thinking about sci fi before Star Wars. It gets such this rap for being like pessimistic, right? Mm-hmm. You think of Ender's Game, doesn't actually have a happy ending, it ends with genocide. And I know the series addresses it. But then you also get Dune, which is not just boring. I'm sorry I said it, but it's not, it's pessimistic as well. So it's curious to see that sci-fi's legacy isn't as black and white either. And mm-hmm. I love this way that you phrase it too, that it's any shred of peace is worth fighting for. And yeah, it needs to be tempered with some realism that why would these people just hand over this magic cure-all? But it's um, still worth... like. I can't fault them for trusting because why would you not believe that? We think everyone's working to fight cancer. We think everyone's working to end disease. So there's a sense of that naivete that we would still like kind of like in people. We wish we had that kind of trust in one another. Yeah. Well, before we get to the next topic, you said something here that reminded me of what I just said, which reminded me of something I just saw the other day. Um, it was a GK Chesterton quote that was co-opted. So the actual quote is the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Mm. It has been found difficult and left untried, but someone took that. And instead of the Christian ideal is the, uh, peace has not been tried and found wanting. Right. So just this idea. And I mean, I could, if anyone's interested in this topic, I'd love to talk to you about it. Cause this was my pseudo emphasis with my master's degree where the idea of nonviolent resistance has been proven to be effective, but the Mm -hmm. problem is there's no money in it. Right. I mean, you don't, you're not going to fund a military with nonviolent resistance. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of case studies to show even within interpersonal relationships with um, people who, you know, we talk about that mythical, if someone breaks into your home, what do you do? I mean, so many case studies of people like looking at it and like what happens when you can properly de-escalate a situation mm-hmm. and just how effective it is. And it's very rehumanizing. But, you know, so that's, again, when I think of Honda, like obviously as someone who served in the military and saw war, you know, he's not an armchair ethicist, right? He's mm-hmm. literally like, I've seen, I've looked into the pits of hell and I know if we don't choose peace, like this is where we go. So, right. Um, in that light though, you know, I think something that really this film tries to capture on is the idea of like, to what end? Um, and I say that in the sense of with the cure for cancer, 
I mean, not only did the humans just like jump on that idea, but you know, you have that scientist who immediately is like, well, what else can we do? Right? Like mm-hmm. he doesn't even think cancer. He's thinking eradicating fatal diseases in general. So on the one hand, like I can't blame the humans for being so trusting, right? I mean, that that would be huge. Of like, well, if we could cure cancer, mm-hmm. like the possibilities are endless. But then, but then that makes me think of the discussion of quality versus quantity of life. And when I took my ethics class at Fuller, my first semester, that's what got me on the road towards hospice care. And it's really possible to focus more on a cure and not people. Mm. So we strive to live longer, but what does that mean if we have a less rewarding life? And how do we even define a successful life, right? Mm. Is it by the years lived or what's done with your life? So we see here that desire to end suffering actually brought on more suffering, right? The, the logical conclusions of, hey, these are aliens. Like we've already had an alien monster destroy <laughs> part of our town. Like maybe we should think this through. Maybe we should do, uh, well, I guess, you know, Glenn's like, you can't always do a background check on the people you date, right? But maybe we should have done a background check with these people before we just commit to like, making an agreement with them, right? And the fact that they showed up before that agreement was even made, that should have been a telltale sign, like this isn't what we need to do. Mm-hmm. It was also kind of funny that they would trade the cure for cancer. It was like, you let me borrow your car, I'll give you the cure for cancer. <laughs> if your car was a giant radiated dinosaur. You don't know what I drive. <laughs> <laughs> My other car is a TARDIS. <laughs> Uh, sorry if your car has that bumper sticker yeah (laughs) but you know and it's not just the cancer too it's the element of the nukes right so Mm -hmm. i feel like this is the first film where even as a pacifist like i could understand why someone would want to use nukes here right you're like oh god we're getting invaded like if we don't do something about this it's not just like tokyo like it's our entire world is Mm going to be enslaved but like just because it seems justified, does that mean it's warranted? So like, you know, it's funny that the priest makes a prayer. He's like, well, we should pray to save our souls. It's kind of similar to that idea of like you eat McDonald's and you pray, Lord bless this food that would nourish our bodies. And it's like, uh-huh. okay, that's not how it works. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, like it's still framed as not being a good choice, right? It just seems like there's not any other solutions but this is why i feel like even as a pacifist i wish we would subscribe to the idea of just war because there has to be six conditions to do just war um has to be for just cause has to be lawfully declared by lawful authority um the intention behind war must be good um and then sorry i i guess i only put five here um, so the means used must be in proportion to the end that the war seeks to achieve. But I think the last one, and again, I missed one, um, the one that's here is the most important one is all other ways of resolving the problem needs to be tried first. Mm. Right. So if they would have just jumped to the nukes, like, again, there's no way they would have known it would have worked. But the fact is they didn't. The fact is they waited to try to find another solution. And guess what? It did work. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not hard for me to think. Honda and Sekizawa said that on purpose, where in all of these films, 
using a nuke and all these other options are always a consideration, but they're willing to find a different way. And that different mm -hmm. way always works, even if it's out of their control, right? They let things get to that conclusion. And that's, I've, I've seen people argue with like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like that was not the last choice. There could have been other, like there's so many other things that could have happened first, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's just interesting you know, again, to what end and all of this, like how, at what cost is it for us to agree to progress in life in light of like what this, so we could choose to use the nukes to destroy the auxilians, but like we talked last time, what does it say for Japan to use nukes? Like mm -hmm. what does that say about their acceptance overall, especially with their history with it? Right. Okay, so now that I'm done with my sermon here, um, Jack, so you said you, there's a couple other themes that you've been pulled towards. So like, what? how could you enlighten Chris and I? Well, Me first of all, I mean, that whole spiel you just did, my jaw is just kind of hanging open. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm still trying to absorb all of that. Like, it's hard to like, you know, have a conversation after all of that. And I, I felt <laughs> that that was just all very thoughtful. Um, but wow, hold on, let me shake my head here. And, uh, I, I really wanted to kind of like dive into things that I haven't talked about before regarding this film. Uh, a lot of people expect me to always talk about Glenn, Nick Adams, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Understandable. Um, <laughs> but I really want to focus on, uh, Tetsuo Tori and his lady guard and what that means for the themes of this movie and science fiction in general. Because you, you two have been kind of beating around that a whole lot. But I think there's a lot of meat there. And I kind of want to start with just Akira Kubo, uh, who's just a great underrated talent. You know, he's excellent in so many others. He's been thrown up blood, uh, man tango. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I listen. Uh, <laughs> Shoot. Um, we'll see him in Son of Godzilla. He's great in that. Destroy all monsters. So here... He falls, he falls under Honda's general version of heroes that I spoke of. He's just an inventor trying to get by and marry his girlfriend. Oh, and impress his girlfriend's brother. Uh, and he ends up being the, the hero with the ultimate weapon against the Zillions. He protects the Earth or guards Mother Earth with the Lady Guard, which is, you know, it's, it's essentially a rape whistle mm -hmm. is what, what is was built for. And there's a couple of big, uh, two big ways to take the inclusion of that device. And one is the inescapable aspect of science fiction dating as far back that, that, to its conception, really, um, of, of course, it, uh, sexual symbolism. You know, a lot of scholars, film historians, professors like to label it as just dry sexual symbolism. Hmm. I like to refer to it as sterilized sterilized sexual depravity because i mean look at it from from the basic concept of a phallic design the phallic design of rocket ships penetrating into the unknown to you know aliens wanting to mate with uh i see you there <laughs> aliens wanting to mate with human women in the mysterians uh captain kirk's somewhat exotic outlook on other species in star trek the mm. terrifying pseudo impregnation of of uh the people in planet of vampires 
to the more like disturbing imagery in Alien and Cronenberg's The Fly, uh, it's there and it, it's going to continue to be there. So in this particular movie, we have our planet being ravaged. We were tricked, lulled into a false sense of security, and then attacked. Mm-hmm. And then the rape whistle was blown. The lady guard did the job, the job it was huh. ten- intended to do. Hmm. And and I think <clears throat> I think the reason for this is in Japan, uh, early early to mid nineteen sixties, there were a lot of issues with rape and murder of women in the Tokyo area. Uh, one massive case was the kidnap and murder of uh, Yoshinobu uh, Mirakoshi. She was four years old. Um, and even bigger one was uh, the Sayama incident of 1963. 16-year-old uh, Yoshi Nakata had been kidnapped in Sayama and a failed attempt to apprehend a known suspect resulted in her uh, her subsequent rape and murder. And there was there was just a massive outcry over whether or not public servants could or even cared to protect women in the area. So contextualizing this with what if we're all being ravaged, violated, taken advantage of, to me, Tetsuo is the the ultimate hero of the movie. His invention was created for a a, a far too common issue of the time, far too common issue today, and then used when all of mankind felt that helpless. Huh. So. <clears throat> hey, you know, and you had just talked about David's insights being really fantastic. And then you just dropped your own. That was fantastic. <laughs> That's my turn to underwhelm. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, that was awesome. Well, it, it's, you know, it was. The lady guard was there for a reason. You know, Honda has always wanted to make stories about the common people. And it's it's always fascinating to see what's going on amongst the common people. I say common people, commoners uh, uh, at the time. And then when you see that, you know, these these crimes are just skyrocketing around the time this movie came out. I mean, Mm. yeah. And that's something where. I'm glad you brought that to light because I mean that's something that in my own experiences I never would have been able to make that correlation. Um yeah, I mean it's you're right. That's that's always been the strength of Honda's film is he writes about real people, right? And that's right. why even when you go through his biography, you know, some of the films that are praised the most aren't even his Godzilla films. You know, it's the ones that get into just day-to-day life about marriage, about jobs. You know, so even thinking about the way that with um, how, you know, the lady guard is bought, but he has not received payment, right? And is mm-hmm. is they try to take it off the market just to take advantage of him. Like, how many people in life have gone through something like that, right? Like, they're told, hey, I mean, just in general, like, I've been in that position before where it's like, hey, we're going to promote you, right? We want to do this and that. And it's always held above your head, but you never see the fruit. Mm. of what's being told you know so it's it it is interesting that the most powerful things that are being brought up are just about like it's not the the aliens or the monsters it's us like the lives that we live and how he's able to magnify that in a sci-fi film about monsters right 
I think that's part of why this film, the characters in this film works so well, because again, they aren't your typical action heroes there. You know, we, one of my favorite scenes is when they all sit down together to have tea. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a, just four regular people trying to make things, trying to make family life work. <laughs> so really at this point, I mean, I feel like we've, we've gotten into a lot. Um, I know I just got some random asides here and I'll keep this short. So I was kind of thinking like, first of all, it's interesting that Mothra wasn't desired by the Zillions, right? Cause she was obviously part of why King Ghidorah was run off. Um, oh yeah. But I do think I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, how long were the Zillions on earth? Like how long were they preparing for this? Right. Um, but I, I love the fact that like, we're talking about how they're so focused on their computer, but we see that they're capable of making mistakes because we see the whole miscalculation and the hydrogen oxide plant gets hit by Monster Zero. Um, but I'm kind of wondering if like maybe they were the ones behind King Ghidorah in the last film, right? Because it's clear that like they knew the whole point was to get the monsters off so that they could bring them back and control them and stuff like that. So kind of I wonder if there's any correlation there. Um, mm. But first of all, the boat explosion was absolute overkill. And I'm here for that. That was the best <laughs> explosion we've seen in the series. Um, but my favorite part in the whole film, and it's silly for me to say this, but when Tetsu was like, he said he'd stand on his head if anyone bought my invention. He'd better start practicing. And immediately it cuts to Glenn and Fuji and they're upside down. Oh, as if they're cut. standing on their head. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. Oh God, that's great. Like just things like that. I just love this film. Yeah, that's awesome. There were a lot of great cuts like that. I also like the, uh, there's a shot with the P1 going through space and then it cuts to, you know, a, a wall of stars, but it turns out it's just the wall on the restaurant. That mm-hmm. Tetsu is a great yeah. match cut. Yeah. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that like, if you don't, and I don't, I don't know how much of that it's missed in dubs for these films because we've been going through watching the Japanese versions, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of stuff that if you only watch it as like, how can I get immediate gratification for the, the action? Like you miss a lot of that, right? Like they, mm-hmm. budgets may have been low, but the people working on these films were far and beyond like some of the best in the industry. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, very talented and resourceful. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this is a good time for us to transition into questions this week. Thank you, everyone, for providing these. Um, So since we do have three hosts, I figure uh, we can alternate, make this fun. Uh, Mm. So if you could go ahead and start, Jack. All right. So uh, Vanit on Mm -hmm. Twitter uh, asked, how should the legendary MonsterVerse bring back the Zillions? So for the rules here, if you ask a question, you answer first. Okay. And then Chris, you'll go and then I'll go. <laughs> uh, uh, I think they need to bring back Charles Dance. And like at the end of Godzilla versus Kong, he just needs to uh, put on the glasses at the tail end mm-hmm. and, and contact outer space just after the battle. <laughs> I, I, I'm here for that. That would just be my... I'm, I was, someone tried to convince the world that Charles Dance was a zillion in King of the Monsters. 
And I'm I'm so disappointed that didn't happen. <laughs> Which, Chris, I know that means nothing for you, and I'm so sorry. Uh, well, that's all right. I know what a zillion is. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So, do you have an answer? I do. Okay. Okay, here's my thought. King Kong versus Godzilla, right? The 2020 classic movie, 100% fresh and rotten tomatoes comes out. And one of the characters complains about his corns. All right. The zillions say, let us borrow your monsters for a week and we'll give you this potion that gets rid of troublesome corns. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, you can't top that. Adam, Adam Winger, like, what are you doing here? We need reshoots now. <laughs> hey, they've got plenty of time. It's already been delayed. Yeah. Oh, uh, I remember I freaked so many people out when I was like, I bet they're just going to release it on Netflix like the Cloverfield Paradox. And they're like, they better not. <laughs> yeah, don't tell that. Don't say that out loud. <laughs> oh, I, I did. I did. Too, too many people take that seriously. <laughs> yeah. See, I just, I don't even care. I'm just like, whatever you need to do, like, bring back the zillions it would be awesome yeah i'm, I'm here for i that, mean i'm not sure. gonna see it till 2022 anyway so <laughs> yeah, good point <laughs> all right next question go chris so this one comes from j saint g on twitter the famous debate which is better Ghidorah the three-headed monster or the invasion of astro monster and i is it just me but i keep wanting to put a the in astro monster but anyway it's not you. i but it's not you. They they actually messed that up due to the oh. bad Engl- English translating. It should have been the invasion of the Astro Monster is what it should have been. But oh, interesting. We, we just got whatever Astro Monster. Um, <laughs> I so I liked I liked the Ghidorah movie. This one I thought was a lot better, just because um, I just like the investigation of the themes a little bit. And um, now that you've kind of pointed out the campiness, I agree. It was it was pretty fun. It felt like a Flash Gordon if Flash Gordon was mm-hmm. 60 stories tall. <laughs> so I'll go with this one. Yeah. And, and I would, too. Again, it's not that Ghidorah was a bad film, but I think we talked about last episode where it's obvious now that it was rushed, right? So with this, I feel like having more time, having a little bit of polish, but injecting new blood as well. I mean, sometimes that's what you need. So Mm -hmm. I would say invasion definitely edges it out for me. I mean, you know, my answer. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's, you know, and and it's it's for the same reason that you gave. I think Ghidorah just isn't as polished. As invasion of Astro Monster, I think invasion of Astro Monster had more time behind it. And uh, that allowed it to have stronger themes, stronger visuals, stronger characters, etc. Mm-hmm. That's fair. All right. So Alexander. So really, I'm, I'll be honest, all these are on Twitter. So I'm not going to keep saying <laughs> that. Um, Alexander asked, if there was something you would change about this film, what would it be? And I really don't think I would change anything except the mixing on the score is soft sometimes. So I had mentioned to you, Jack, like, and I, th- I think I finally put it together why 
I love this score. So I, I definitely feel like, because I haven't seen Frankenstein yet, so I can't comment on that. But Same. this score reminds me the most of what we get with War of the Gargantuas, with how shrill the brass sounds, with how mm-hmm. eerie and moody everything is. So there's so many parts in the score where if I listen to it separate, like on YouTube, I like I love it. And I get in the film and some of it's drowned out, right? Where like the trumpets are just like there's there's so what we would say in band blastissimo, right? And I love that it's not clean, like there's some some tonal shifting going on and you miss that in the film because there's action and stuff on top of it. So I'm not saying it's bad, but like I'm a score guy. So like I would have loved to hear that brought to the forefront a little bit more. Mm. Okay. I, um, if I were to change anything, it would be a reason for the Zillions to have a ruse at mm-hmm. all to use Godzilla mm. Rodan. Um, cause you know, why, why did they need to ask permission to use Godzilla Rodan if they already knew where they were? What's the point of the ruse? Did they want to, did they want earth to, to confirm where they were for them? Did they want to bide their time and make sure the the lady guard was taken care of i mean uh to be fair it it doesn't bother me too much it kind of reminded me of the dark knight which is a great movie it's one of my favorites and while this isn't particularly a whole it's a little hard to buy that the joker staged a very elaborate car chase just on the whim that he'd talked to batman in a police station where he also had a sta- a staged person bomb to help him escape. I mean, yeah. that's a lot of things going right for the Joker. But you know what? All the moving parts, the actors, the characters, the tone, the visuals are working so well that I didn't notice how unbelievable all that was the first few times I saw the movie. Likewise, everything else works so well in this movie that the plot hole doesn't bother me. But it would be nice just to kind of nip it, nip it in the bud. Yeah, I think when you bring that up, I probably filled in some of that myself. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. No. Movies don't need to hold my hand. But having you hear say it out loud, I do. I am starting to kind of come on your side. Well, I mean, it again, it doesn't bother me enough that it totally distracts. It Obviously, it didn't distract me because it, it didn't it didn't dawn on me for years that yeah. that was a plot hole. <laughs> um, and you know the reason for it, for it may have been more due to the the climate of the time. Anyway, you know we mm. have companies being used as a prop for by malicious states. We have enemies procuring weapons. Godzilla's radioactivity is said to be growing in this movie, and our enemy takes him as if they took you know our schematics for a weapon that proved itself against their weapon, King Ghidorah. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're posing as one of us in our society and culture. The space race was underway and we have rockets flying to distant planets. This is the Cold War through and through. And once the Zillions were confident they had enough weapons of mass destruction, they attacked, they struck. So I think, mm. I think the reason for the ruse was basically just to play on the Cold War themes of the time. But, and, and that works. But I just wish there was more of a reason. <laughs> sure. Hey guys, so making a quick edit here. I've got a wife who's 38 weeks pregnant and not feeling great. Um, So we had a couple questions here. Promise we will get to them next week. 
um, but not going to be able to tonight. So before we go, Jack, wanted to thank you again for joining us. Um, yeah. Seriously, yes, this you. has uh, been a wonderful episode. I've got a lot to edit out, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to say for later. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. no, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're having fun. Um, so before we go, though, as you know, uh, and Chris has to remind me, uh, we pour one out for the best death in the film, which is morbid now that I say it, but hey, it is what it is. So do you have one prepared or should we go first to give you a few minutes? You, you go first. Okay. So mine's a little creative. It's going to take a visual effect, I think, to give mm-hmm. it. Um, and On our podcast. He, yes. And technically he didn't die, but I'm going to pour one out. Well, I guess he died later. Um, to the zillion who was strangled and I guess audibly tortured. <laughs> so when he's, you know, being held through the, the bars and he's going <laughs> like that. Um, obviously that was just a very iconic moment and, um, uh, you, you definitely deserve the pouring out unnamed zillion man. Mm-hmm. I guess I, mine's a little esoteric. I was going to say either good, but as always, last week's was too. (laughs) Yeah, fair. Uh, (laughs) Mine is you could either define it as Godzilla's dignity or Honda's um, sanity, but I'm pouring one out for Godzilla for that dance. I'm I'm used to it in like Sentai when everyone's posing for no reason, but Godzilla doing it, uh, it it took me a minute to kind of. I was like, this is Japanese. They do this. It's okay. <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. So pouring out. So any, just any moment that really strikes me. Someone's you know, death that someone's you'd death. want okay. to commemorate. Yeah. And it's, okay. again, it doesn't even have to be a literal death here. Okay. Well, I uh, don't know if he died. Let's just pretend he did. But there, there's one zillion that uh, Glenn struck when he was escaping with Tetsuo. And he just beats him into the floor. And when the guy goes, when the guy hits the ground, his his butt remains in the air. Like he's kind of <laughs> sleeping. You know, like like he it like all the weight is kind of like on his face, but his butt's just still in the air as he hit the ground. Awesome. So it, it, it was I'm gonna go with that guy. The the unnamed zillion two. We'll unnamed him. zillion butt sleeper. Hey, so when you say that one zillion was beaten to death, how many is that? More than a trillion. (laughs) All right, Jack. Thanks again for joining us tonight. Make sure to stay tuned next episode as we will be discussing the first three episodes of episodes, the first three films of the Showa Gamera series that are demonstrably better than Gamera Super Monster. Demonstrably. Yes. But um. Have a great night. (laughs) Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. If you liked what you heard, don't be a stranger. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Kaiju Apostle Pod. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, you can subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. Lastly, we do have a Patreon page where we have some great perks, including early access to the episodes, show notes, and the ability to have your voice recordings featured on the show. 
Again, we appreciate the support and we look forward to hearing from you.